Hey guys, good to be back with you today. Um, I'm in a new room in the apartment because kids are napping. I've got my new hat on and uh, ready to teach the book. Another hat? Is that what you're thinking, right? And uh, if that's what you're thinking, here's what I would say to you. Woody, my wife, get off my back. Anyway, new hat, new room. Um, my cold is mostly gone. Uh, I am back to normal, ready to teach the book of Luke again. So if you're in, um, if you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Luke chapter 9 if you want to follow along in the uh, the YouVersion app. That stuff's all up there on the website. And today, back in the story of Luke, we're going to be talking about questions, and we're going to specifically be talking about sort of the big question. Um, but I'll tell you, right now, our, our, our kid, who's a foster kid, so I can't say her name on the camera and then put it on the internet, um, started doing that really annoying thing where um, she starts asking, like, the question, why, all the time, you know? Uh, hey, can you hand me the remote? Why? Well, because I want to watch the Giants. Why? Well, because, I don't know, I like baseball. Why? Well, because when I was a kid, I used to watch baseball with my dad. Why? I don't know, because there was nothing better on TV, because it was the 80s, and there was only two channels. Why? Well, because not everybody had cable, and we didn't have a lot of money. Why? Well, because, you know, you get it, right? And eventually, it's like, okay, I get, you know, just, just let me watch this Giants game, right? It starts to get annoying. Actually, it's actually really cute when she asks all these questions. But the truth is, asking questions like that, maybe not like that, but asking questions is one of the most important things that we do as human beings. Um, it's what separates us from the animals. That and, uh, I don't know, delicious, delicious food. No, I'm just kidding. But um, <clears throat> it's what separates us from the animals, right? It's one of the most important things that we do um, in philosophy, for example. Um, there, philosophy is all about just asking questions and then trying to answer them and then letting other people answer them and then scrutinizing their answers and very politely calling them dummies, right? So one example of this is there's like a whole branch of philosophy called epistemology, which just asks the question, how do you even know the things that you know, right? How do you know things? And people come up with all these, you know, through your senses, through logic, and they argue about how do you know this and how do you know that? Um, but the idea of just asking that question and then trying to answer it is really an amazing thing that we do um, as a species. Um, it's also what great teachers do. Really good teachers are great at asking questions and getting a student to understand a problem and asking questions well before they give them the answers, right? So um, like I, I was thinking about this and man, I had some good teachers and I had some bad teachers. And as I was thinking about it, the bad teachers, usually what happened is I didn't even know not just like what they were trying to teach me, but even what was the realm of what they were trying to teach me. So for example, I had a really bad geometry teacher and he was terrible. And <clears throat> you know, a lot of kids in that class struggled. I especially struggled, although he passed me because um, I was the captain of the basketball team, right? And I needed at least a C uh, to stay on the team. So, hey, go private school, right? But anyway, um, <clears throat> I didn't understand anything about geometry. And most of the time it was not because I didn't understand the theorems and that sort of stuff. I didn't even understand what we were trying to do you know, when I was 14 or whatever it was that I took geometry, right? It's not until you really understand the question and the problem that you can come up with a good and a satisfactory answer. So like, let me give you an example, right? Think of, imagine that I've never heard of a doorknob, right? I don't know. I just, this is a random thing, right? But I've never even heard of a doorknob and you're trying to explain to me what a doorknob is. Now, how would you do that? Would you start just by describing the actual doorknob? Would you say, well, it's round and like the one I'm looking at right now, it's brass, um, and you, you turn it, and I okay, I still don't know what this is. 
But if you start describing how some houses, you know, or buildings or whatever, they have different rooms and those rooms are separated by these swinging pieces of wood or whatever that are called doors. You know what a door is? I say, yeah, I know what a door is. Well, the door needs to stay closed sometimes and sometimes it needs to be open. And the doorknob is the little mechanism that you turn. It's round and it's sometimes it's brass or whatever. And you turn it and it allows you to open and close the door, right? And now all of a sudden I know not just what a doorknob is. It's a round piece of metal, but or glass or what, you know what I mean. Um, but I know what it does, right? So getting underneath and really kind of asking these questions uh, is really important, like like diving deep down. Now, <clears throat> in the book of Luke, we've, we've been reading this to ask the big question. And in the book of Luke, this one question keeps popping up. And I've mentioned this in a few sermons, um, but now I want to actually go through and read all of these in a row. It's this question where people are trying to figure out the same thing we're trying to figure out as we read the book of Luke. Who is Jesus? Who is this guy? Right. So I'm just going to read most of these with no context. If you want to look for some context, you know, go uh, look all of these verses up. But the first one is Luke 4.22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So the people there are asking, wait, who is this? Isn't this just Joseph's kid? Um, 521, and the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So how is he claim who is this guy claiming to be able to forgive sins? Luke 719, calling two of his disciples to him, uh, sent them to the Lord, saying, <clears throat> Are you the one to come, or shall we ask for another? Right? So are are you really the guy? Who is this guy? Are you really him? Um 749, jumping forward a few verses. Uh, then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that, uh, who even forgives sins? And in the last chapter, we were in chapter 8. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this uh, that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Right? Who is this? He's even commanding the ocean. And then 9-9, nine, nine, what we just read a couple weeks ago, right? Herod said, John I beheaded. Uh, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So all throughout Luke, Luke is all throughout this gospel, Luke is the author is sprinkling in um, these verses where people are looking at Jesus and they're asking, who is this? But here's the thing, even more important, right, than the question, who is Jesus? Uh, there, there's even another kind of deeper level. Um, there's a scholar um, in the field of kind of comparative religions. He's like a, a religious scholar. He's not a Christian, not a, a believer at all. And he wrote a book called The Religious Man. And in that book, his name is um, Huston, I think is how you say it, Houston maybe, just spelled funny. Uh, I don't know how to say it actually, Smith. He said this in that book, how many people have provoked the question, not who are you with respect to name and origin and ancestry, but what are you? What order of being do you belong to and what species do you represent? Not Caesar, certainly, right? Not Napoleon, not even Socrates. Only two, Jesus and Buddha. When the people carried their puzzlement to the Buddha himself, uh, the answer he gave provided a handle for his entire message. So they asked him, are you a god? Uh, no. An angel? No. A saint? No. Then what are you? And Buddha answered, I am awake. So in this quote, this not <clears throat> Christian religious scholar who studies world religions, he says, look, there's a lot of great people in the history of the world, but only two of these people have ever taken the question, who are you, to the next level, from who are you, right, to what are you. Like, 
what are you? Are, are you a God? What are you? And he says, look, only two of these guys have done this, Buddha and Jesus. And he says, when his followers or whoever brought this question to Buddha, um, he passed the buck. And he said, look, I'm not a God. I'm just a dude. I'm just alive. So today, now we're going to finish uh, this quote. And we're going we're gonna to ask this question. If, uh, when Jesus' followers bring this question to him, what do they say? How does he answer? And what he does is we're going to see the way he answers by letting his disciples answer and then clarifying their answer and building upon, um, building upon their answer. So the text, uh, we're going to begin here in Luke uh, 9. Let me find it. I actually didn't open this beforehand. I should have done that. Let's see. No, that's not it. Luke 9, we're going to begin here in verse 18. Uh, <clears throat> now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Okay, so the the setting here, the geographical setting that we get from some of the other parallels, right? There's a parallel to this story in both Matthew and in Mark, um, and we're reading the one in Luke. Um in the parallels, we get the geographic setting. Now, the way that we put maps, let's see if this Bible has maps. I'm curious now. Uh, yep, it does. The way that we put maps in the back of a Bible, uh, in the back of our Bibles, you would think uh, that the key to understanding Scripture is to understanding the geography of where all of these things happened. And you know, a lot of that stuff is neat. Um, but usually it's good to know, but it's not super important for interpreting a text, right? Sometimes it is. In this case, though, the geography actually does add a, this really interesting layer to this whole text. So they're further up from the Sea of Galilee, kind of at the north end of the land of Israel, in a little, um, or sorry, in a, near a city, just above a city in the mountains. Um, the city is called Caesarea Philippi. And uh, right now, I'll play this video. I think I will. If I don't play the video, I look real stupid now, but I think I have a video. I'll put it right here or something <clears throat> that kind of shows this area while I describe this. Now, I don't have time to get into the whole history um, of this area, but it's right. Uh, this city is at the foot of Mount Hermon, not the Mount Hermon in Santa Cruz, uh, which is one of the happiest places on earth, right? But this is near uh, at the north end of Jerusalem, near uh, the Old Testament city of Dan. So in the Old Testament, you would read from Dan to Beersheba, right? Which means Dan at the top and Beersheba at the bottom is kind of the extent of uh, the land of of Israel. Now, when the kingdom of uh, Israel split, right? When David was king, then Solomon was king, and then Solomon's idiot son, Rehoboam, uh, got in a big fight with all the people and the, the kingdom split into two. And so Rehoboam took some of the part of the south and another guy named Jeroboam took um, 10 tribes in most of the northern the northern uh, kingdom. But here's the problem, was all the religious stuff happened in Jerusalem, which was under the control of Rehoboam. And so what this guy Jeroboam did was he set up these false altars and these false idols. And one of those was right up here in this area. And so that sort of began this long history of sort of a pagan religious activity in this area. So there were famous temples here to Baal. There was like the Greek god Pan had a temple here. Um, it was the city is named Caesarea Philippi. So it was named Caesar, basically. Um, the city was named Caesar, which at this time people were worshiping Caesar, you know. And so there was sort of the, the, the emperor deification was going on here. Basically, this is a very famous religious area. It's like... Um, if I said to you today, uh, you know, if we were talking about Jerusalem, right, 
uh, one of the first things that pops your mind is, oh, that's sort of a holy site for the Jews, the, the Christians, uh, and the Muslims, right? This, this little city of Jerusalem is this holy, holy area. It's this, there's a lot of religious activity here. Or um, just for one religion, if I was talking to you and I talked about Mecca, you would know exactly what I mean, right? That sort of center of Islam. Um, that's kind of Caesarea Philippi, right? That, uh, <clears throat> that layer of all this stuff that Jesus is asking these people is happening in this area that's known for this pagan worship and worshiping other gods besides Yahweh. And so that's where Jesus chooses to sit his disciples down and to ask this question. Now, he says, it says there, he was in Caesarea Philippi, and he was here and he was praying alone with his disciples, right? I just want to be alone. You know, cool, we can go be alone together. I, I don't understand exactly what's going on here, right? He was alone with his disciples praying. I think what it means probably is that they were away from the crowds, right? He was alone away from the crowds. His disciples and him were having sort of a prayer meeting. Um, they were gone. And in this moment, he stops in the middle of the prayer meeting and he poses this question to disciples. Now, um, the context to this question is also important. So if you remember last week, we read the story of the feeding of the 5,000, which was actually the feeding of the probably like 12 to 20,000. And after that, Jesus explains that it's not about the material goods, right? He says, you don't need something from me. You need me. If you didn't hear all that, that was last week's sermon. After the teaching about the bread of life, where Jesus says, basically, you need to feast on my flesh and all this stuff. And everybody goes, oh, this is weird. Um, in John uh, 6, uh, verse 66, it says this. After this, so after the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus explaining the feeding of the 5,000, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So after Jesus teaching the feeding of the 5,000, teaching about the feeding and the bread of life, a whole bunch of people turned away and said, I don't want anything to do with this guy anymore. And so once then Jesus, that sort of settles and Jesus gets away from the crowd it's probably on all of the disciples' minds. Man, everybody is trying to figure out who Jesus is. And a lot of people just heard Jesus explain, I'm the bread of life, and they took off. And so Jesus asks his disciples, you know, who do the people, who, 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 this crowd that we're talking about now, who are they saying that I am? What are these conversations about? Now, look at the answers that they give in verse 19. Yeah, verse 19. And they answered John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Now, the opinions here that they give are the same that they give back in verse, that Luke gives back in verse, um, in chapter 9, verse 7, 8, and 9. Look at this. Uh, now when Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So the same kind of, you know, three answers. The first option that people are saying is, well, maybe he's John the Baptist. Now, come back from the dead. Now, remember, Herod had already at this point killed John the Baptist because John the Baptist spoke about, spoke out against Herod's sin um, in uh, sort of his adulterous marriage with uh, his brother's wife. Um, <clears throat> we talked all about that a few weeks ago. Um, so some people thought that maybe John's spirit or something came back. Maybe John came back from the dead as uh, Jesus. I don't completely understand what's going on because John and Jesus were around at the same time. They were even related. They were distantly related, but they were related. John baptized Jesus. I think a lot of what's going on here is, remember, there's no CNN People don't see Jesus and John at the same time. You know, if you weren't there when Jesus, I don't know. Like people are confused and they're, 
they're thinking, well, both these guys are preaching about the kingdom of God and repentance. Maybe Jesus is John come back from the dead somehow. The second option is Elijah. So at the end of the book, um, sorry, at the end of the Old Testament, um, there's this verse in Malachi 5, 4 that says, sorry, 4, 5, a little Sid lexic there. Uh, Behold, I will send uh, you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So as the the Old Testament is closed, God promises, yes, I'm going to send Elijah. And then the great day of the Lord and the Messiah and all that stuff is coming. So they thought, well, maybe Jesus is Elijah come back from the dead, fulfilling this prophecy. And what we know is it didn't mean Elijah would come back from the dead. What it meant was that somebody just like Elijah would come. And that somebody was John the Baptist. So, uh, you know, in part of one of the other gospels, they sort of explain that really well. So, you know, that's not the answer. The other answer people give, well, maybe one of the other prophets, right? Prophets like Moses and uh, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. One of the other parallels here actually names Jeremiah. Uh, these guys were like the giants of the faith. And now here is this Jewish rabbi. He's doing all these amazing things. Clearly, he's sent by God. Maybe he's like one of these Old Testament prophets come back from the dead. Now, uh, well, None of those are the right answer to this question. The crowd doesn't get it right. Um, And the same thing kind of happens today, right? If you were to go around and pull people and you were just to ask them, hey, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus, blah, 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 you know, whatever. I'm curious, who do you think Jesus really is? Be honest with me. Who who do you think Jesus is? You're going to get a couple of answers. The first answers you're going to get is he never really existed. Um, I had some great quotes and stuff I'm not going to read here. There's a lot of scholarship that basically tries to say, well, Jesus never existed. And a lot of it is hogwash because there's some serious, I never thought I'd say hogwash in a sermon, right? Anyway, there's a lot of serious scholarship that can prove outside of the Bible that Jesus existed. So, uh, But some people will say, no, 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 he was like a legend that grew. The, the time frame at all doesn't really make sense, but that's one answer people give. Another answer that some scholars will give will say, I don't know, he was probably a guy, but it's impossible at this point because of all the layers of religious activity to really know who he was. Some people will say, well, you know, he wasn't God or anything, but he was a good guy. He was a moral uh, teacher. Related to that answer, you'll probably hear, well, he was a moral example, right? So not only should we do the stuff he taught, but we should do the stuff that he did. I really like that golden rule kind of stuff. Um, Another answer is that, you know, kind of like he's a, he was a failed messiah whose legend grew. And what was it that I was just watching? Oh, we're watching a um, documentary about the Heaven's Gate cult. And they had a religious scholar in there basically saying that no, nobody in Christianity expected Jesus to die. So when it did, the whole religion had to pivot. You know, so he was this, even though he was dead, you had to make up this story about the resurrection. You might hear that. Some people will say, well, I don't know who he is. Um, but anyway, there, there's a lot of these kind of answers. Same thing with the crowd. Bunch of wrong answers about who Jesus is. Now, so look what Jesus does in um, verse 20. He, he sort of really narrows it home. He says, Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So now Jesus hammers it home. You've, you've seen me up close. I've uh, taught you. I've, Peter, I healed your mother-in-law. You've... Uh, You've uh, seen me heal great crowds. You've seen me bring people back from the dead. You were at the feeding of the 5,000. You've watched me pray. You've seen me walk on water. You've seen me calm the storms. You had that great catch of fish. You've seen all of this stuff, right? And with all of that info, who do you think that I am? Now, there's some context here, again, from the book of John. 
Um, at the end of, in that same section, at the end of where Jesus is teaching about the bread of life, where Peter stands up and he, which actually chronologically probably happened just a few days before this story. So in uh, John chapter six, where Peter acts as the spokesman for the disciples again, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? So everybody else just left. And Jesus asked, do you guys want to go with them? And uh, verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know, and here's the key, that you are the Holy One of God. So it's a very similar answer. And again, Peter acts as a spokesman for the entire group, and he answers Jesus's question. And here he says, you're the Holy One of God. They get by a couple of days, they go up to this really religious area, and they're in this place where all this pagan worship is happening. And Jesus asks him, who do the crowd say that I am? And they start to give some answers. And Jesus asks them again, okay, but who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer in Luke is the Christ of God. He answers a little bit different in some of the other gospels. Um, in Matthew, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In Mark, he says, and he asked him, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So remember, <clears throat> a lot of these quotations and stuff originally happened in Aramaic. And all these gospel writers then are translating them from Aramaic to Greek. And there's no way to translate without sort of paraphrasing. There's almost no way to one-for-one one translate. But when you put it all together, you can really see, um, you know, Matthew's answer is pretty good, right? You are the, oops, I just messed up my notes. Uh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? He, it's this, he's answering by saying, basically, you are the Christ, uh, the son of God. Now, um, <clears throat> you you're the promised, I guess, too. You're the promised king of David, right, in the Davidic line. Now, when we hear the word Christ, we always just gloss right over that, and we assume everybody knows what it means. But what does that mean? Is it Jesus' last name? You know, what do people say when they're swearing, you know, Jesus H. Christ, or what, you know, something like that. Like, is is that his name? Um, no, it's not his last name. Christ is the Greek word uh, for the Hebrew word Messiah. And the word Messiah, what it means is the anointed one. Now, anointing was the pouring on of like a big thing of oil on somebody's head in the Old Testament that was kind of like, you know, when we knight somebody in England, oh, not we, but you know what I mean, when the queen knights somebody, she puts the sword. You know, it's just a symbolic sort of thing. Here in America, we pin medals on people. It was a way to set them apart, right? So this anointing happened basically with three different groups of people. The first was prophets were anointed, and they were the people who would speak for God, God's mouthpiece. The uh, priests were anointed, and they represented the people. They were the go-between with the people of God and God himself. And then kings who would rule the people on God's behalf uh, were also anointed. And most of the anointing in the Old Testament talks about these kings. And the Messiah coming then was going to be, the word Messiah means anointed one, which is a way to say all three of those offices now are going to be wrapped up into one ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And, um, you know, I always think it's funny whenever I talk about this, just that side note, that a tweet one time I said where somebody was explaining that or whatever, that Christ means anointed with oil, and that Jesus is just another name for, like, the word that we use in English, Joshua or Josh. And so this guy said, aren't you glad that in English we settled on Christ Jesus instead of oily Josh? I always thought that was funny, right? If we were all preaching and teaching, talking about oily Josh. Anyway, back to that. that sounds awful. Back to this, right? So this is who Jesus is, right? He is the Christ. But there's this extra bit in Matthew. So Peter gives this, um, 
this confession about who Jesus is. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in Matthew 16, uh, verse 17, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, which means the rock. You are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So two important points here. First, Jesus says that, look, I'm going to give you the nickname Rocky, and I love it. Uh, Rock, you know, Simon is his kind of Hebrew name. Uh, Peter is sort of his Greek name, but it means the rock, you know. Uh, Not Dwayne the Rock Johnson, but Peter was the original, the rock. And uh, what he means is, um, you know, you're going to be part of the foundation of the church. And the second thing that he says, and this is the key, this is the more important part. We're not doing a whole thing, how was Peter the leader of the early church and blah, blah, blah. We're not talking about that today. What he says, though, is that God told you this stuff. That's huge. Right, Peter says, you're the Messiah, the, the anointed, you know, the, the anointed king who um, is also God, right? That's what he means when he calls him the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, whoa, that's really cool that you know that. Um, the father told you that, right? Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't, right? He doesn't play it off. Jesus doesn't pull a Buddha and say, no, 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 I'm not a saint. I'm not an angel. I'm not God. I'm just a guy, right? I'm just alive, right? He doesn't say, slow down, you know. Uh, what does he say? He says, yep, and he takes it even further. He says, the way that you know that is because the creator of the universe told you that. And when my church is built, is kind of what Jesus is saying, that statement that you just made is going to be the foundation of the church, that I am the son of the living God, the Messiah, right? Okay, so verse 21 in back in Luke 9, let's keep going. So look what happens next. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. So Jesus now has this amazing conversation with his disciples where he's asking these questions. Who do you think that I am? And they're giving this amazing answer. And Jesus says, great, you got it right. Now don't tell anybody. Huh? Why? Well, again, political baggage. He just let the people know. Uh, Jesus, generally, when we read through the Gospels, when he gets to a Gentile area, he will tell them who he really is. When he's in the Jewish areas, he kind of calms it down. He pull, he reins it back in. Why? Because the Messiah that the people of Israel were expecting was a political leader. And so they were expecting somebody to come in and kick out the Romans and all that stuff. And so Jesus sort of really tries to rein in and pull back that narrative. Um, and what he does in this next uh, verse here, our last verse today, is he takes their expectations of what a Messiah should be, and he flips it completely on his head. Uh, so look at verse 22. So, um, you know, he says, don't tell anybody. And then verse 22, saying, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, uh, third day be raised. So Jesus says now, he calls himself again, he uses his favorite phrase for himself, the son of man, which doesn't mean I'm part of humanity, like it seems to mean in English. It was a term from the, the book of Daniel, this supernatural being, right? God himself. And so what happens to God? Who, the son of man, this, this grand being, what happens? It's so counterintuitive. He's going to suffer. He's going to suffer and he's going to die. Now, Try to, again, like I always say, I, I say this a lot, this phrase, but try to put yourself in the story, right? Um, imagine for a second that you're Peter and you grew up every uh, Sabbath going to the synagogue and hearing the Old Testament, uh, uh, a few passages read and then explained. And, um, you know, you, you live in a land where, where Rome rules with an iron fist and tax collectors like Matthew are ripping off your family and over and over and over again, your entire life, you grow up 
as a part of this oppressed people. And you hear everybody that raised you teaching you that someday there is coming a king. And this king is going to be just like King David that we read about uh, in the book of Samuel and in the book of um, Chronicles and all that. And this guy, King uh, David, he's going to come along and he's going to restore the glory of Israel. He's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And so for your whole life, you're looking at Rome and you're feeling helpless but there's one spot that you have hope is that there's this Messiah. He's coming. He's going to put things right and he's going to kick out the Romans. And so day after day after day, this is where your hope comes from. And this is what you believe. Then you start. However, Peter gets into it as a religious guy. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. And you watch this traveling rabbi go around and do all of the stuff that we've been reading about in Luke. Yeah, he's raising the dead. He's healing people. He's doing all this amazing stuff. And you realize he's the one. He is the, the Messiah. I am literally best friends with the guy that everybody I know has been waiting and waiting and waiting for. And he's told me not to tell everybody yet, but I know that it's him. And then one day, uh, he flat out just asks you to your face, hey, Pete, who do you think that I am? Or Simon, he would have called him right at that point. Who do you think that I am? And you're the Messiah. You are the promised one, the one who brings us hope. And then Jesus says, Peter, you're so right. You are so right. And God has revealed this to you. So as Peter, right, you start to feel pride bubbling up in your heart. This guy is the coming Messiah. He is the this 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 king of David. And that we've all been waiting for. And I just told him to his face, that's who I think you are. And he said, you're right. And God has told you that. And so, like, if Jesus tells you you've done a good job, you should actually feel pretty good about yourself. And that's what's happening here. He's feeling good about himself. And then right in the middle of all of this, and all of this pride, and uh, feeling good about himself, Jesus then drops this bombshell and completely deconstructs everything that you've been taught about the role and the purpose of the anointed Messiah. And he says, I'm not going to overthrow the Romans. That's not what I'm here to do. Right? I'm going to actually be killed by the Romans. I'm going to be killed in a horrible way. I'm going to suffer immensely. And then on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. What? Right now, as Peter, you would just be like completely confused. Um, when I was a kid, like most kids, right? I watched Mr. Rogers. And uh, there was an episode of Mr. Rogers that has scarred me for life. And it was where Mr. And I don't even know if it was an episode of Mr. Rogers or if it was something else that I was watching, like Good Morning America or something. But somewhere I saw something where Mr. Rogers showed, uh, explained how TV shows work. And he showed behind the scenes of the puppets and how he had his hand in the puppets. And he, he zoomed out and showed that it wasn't really his house. It was just a TV set. And as a kid, I remember seeing this and being just like, what? Everything that I know is a lie. And Mr. Rogers is a fraud and a crook. And if I ever see him in the street, I'm going to punch him in his stupid mouth. Right? I was pretty upset. I was, I remember just like, it was absolutely devastating because there was this whole world that I thought I knew with Mr. Rogers and that little train and the puppets and, you know, the postman and um, taking your, you know, you know, where he comes in and he takes his shoes off and the whole thing, <clears throat> right? Um, everything that I knew. And it turns out Mr. Rogers was just a liar and a con man, right? As far as I was concerned. Uh, what Peter was experiencing was very similar, except a thousand times worse, infinitely more devastating. Jesus was breaking down everything that he thought he knew about the way the world works, about the role of God in the world, about the role of the coming Messiah. And Peter probably thought at some point as he's thinking about this, he's daydreaming about the future, just like all of us do. And he's thinking, man, when Jesus 
raises an army at some point, and he does all this amazing stuff. There's going to be these miracles, and we're going to actually have these battles with the Romans, and we're going to defeat the Romans, and we're going to set up this new kingdom just like in the Old Testament. And when that happens, man, I bet I'm going to be the chancellor or something, or I'm going to have some sort of a high-up role in this anti-Roman government. I'm going to be a pretty important person in the land of Israel when Rome gets the boot. And he probably had this whole fantasy, this whole idea about Jesus as the Messiah, and he thought he he knew what that meant for him. No more fishing, right? I'm going to live in a palace and all this stuff. And I'm guessing that a lot of that really was in his mind at this point. When he answered that question, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God, right? And this was a massive moment for Peter in his life and for the life of all of these disciples. And I bet that these disciples kind of huddled up for a minute and just in complete and utter shock, and then talk, does, does Jesus really know what he's doing? So again, they elect Peter, and Peter, I'm guessing they elect Peter, um, he goes and he talks to Jesus. Now, like again, this is, like I said, this is a lot to take in, and Peter's just completely falling apart here. And there's a section that's not in Luke, it's in Matthew, where Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So Lord, you're going to be the promised king who kicks out the Romans, this political leader. You can't die. This is never going to happen. But Jesus, he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, it says, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, you just said you think he's the Son of God. You just said he's the Messiah. But now he's not your kind of Messiah. He's not your kind of son of God. So you're going to pull him aside and you're going to rebuke him. Remember, in in our culture, rebuking a teacher or calling out a, you know, like every day I watch TV and there's, uh, or sorry, I watch baseball or basketball or whatever. And there's the authority in a basketball game is a referee or an umpire in a baseball game or whatever. And every day, what do I do? I sit there and I yell at my TV for these three blind mice who are trying to ump this baseball game. And the people on the field do the same thing, right? They scream and they yell at these umpires. And uh, actually in high school, I once threw a baseball glove in an umpire and I got kicked out of the game. Anyway, like we have no lack of, um, we have no respect for kind of authority figures around. In the ancient world, it was completely the opposite. You would never talk back to an authority. You would never talk back to a teacher. And this is exactly what Peter is doing here. And it's absolutely, it would be absolutely shocking. This is like Wesley Crusher yelling at Captain Picard. Guys, stuff like this did not happen. And you can see then how disoriented by Jesus's his, um, explanation of what a Messiah is going to be. Uh, you can see how disoriented these disciples were. Jesus must be wrong. Think of the pride and the arrogance to spend all this time with Jesus on earth, watch him do all of these things, and then go up to him and say, hey, dude, I think you're wrong about the big question. Peter confronts him, and Jesus' answer, get behind me, Satan. Right A minute ago, you were answering my questions in the power of God, and then it's not exactly what you wanted, and now you're sort of acting in the power of Satan. Because I've clarified what Messiah means. All of a sudden, now you've abandoned God's word and replaced it with your own. You've replaced scripture with your own uh, sort of cultural baggage. And Peter should have known better. right? If you, I don't have time to do it now, but if you go back and you read 
like chapters like Isaiah 53, right? He's pierced for our transgressions or crushed for our iniquities. That whole chapter is about the Messiah and how the Messiah would suffer. And these Jewish folks at this time had come up with all these fancy interpretations, why that doesn't mean what it actually means, right? But the idea that the Messiah would suffer was predicted. And most of the people of God had missed it because they had all this cultural baggage that they were trying to lay on the Messiah. And they were starting by asking the wrong question. They were starting with this question. How can God restore the earthly kingdom of Israel? Right? How can God take us back to the days of Solomon? How can he get rid of these oppressive Romans? And then what they did with the wrong question was they took the scripture and they started to ask the scripture, how do you answer my wrong question? And they built this whole framework that turned out to be completely false. There was no need for a suffering Messiah because they were answering the wrong question. So they were asking the wrong question. But the big question, what is the big question that the Old Testament really asks? It's not, how can we restore the kingdom of Israel? It's, how can we atone for our sin that we see in Genesis chapter 3 and come back into a relationship with Yahweh? And if you read the whole, like, Pentateuch, there's all these rules about holiness and sacrifice and all of this stuff, you know, and um, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, how to deal with um, the problem of sin. And back in 22, back in verse 22, Jesus actually says this, the son of man must suffer. Not he's going to, but he must, right? Because he had to die, right? He had to suffer because that's the way out of um, our problem of sin and our separation from God, right? Take um, the New City Catechism that we use a lot, and I love it. Um, Question 24 says this, why was it necessary for Christ, uh, the Redeemer, to die? And the answer is this, since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and to bring us back to God by his substitutionary atoning death, which means he takes our place and dies in our place. He alone redeems us from hell and gains for us the forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. The entire Old Testament system was this this system of sacrifice, blood for blood, all of this pointed to what would eventually be the ultimate lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world, right? The ultimate anointed one, but who would represent the people for God, the priest who didn't need to offer sacrifices because he was the sacrifice. And so uh, Peter and the disciples and everybody in Israel had completely missed this point because they were starting with the wrong questions. But why? Why, right? How had they done that? Why does Peter balked so hard at the idea of a crucified Messiah. Why did the leaders kill Jesus? It's all the same reason. Our sinfulness and our our brokenness at its root is just really terrible selfishness, right? In Eden, what we did was we told God, I don't want you to be in charge. I want to be in charge. You're not the center of the universe. I am. You're not the Lord of my life. I am. Ultimately, I'm the one calling the shots and I'm the one making the decisions, and that same selfishness, it puffs up and it, 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 it swells up within us and in our own minds and our hearts and it refuses, it, it causes us to refuse to let God be who he really is. And we try to take God and we try to box him in, right? We take this infinite creator and this savior God and we confi- confine him with our own sort of presuppositions. We're made in God's image is what the Bible tells us, is what his word tells us. But what we do is we flip that and we try to make him into our image. 
And this is literally, literally, this is the pinnacle of pride. Trying to tell the creator, the one who created us, listen, this is who I need you to be. I'm going to mold you into somebody that fits my fallen and my broken worldview. I'm going to make you into my idea of who I think you should be. I want you to fit my sensibilities. And this is a man-centered gospel where we are at the middle and we are at the center. And so even if you take that idea of man at the center and you fluff it up with a lot of um, fancy religious language, it's all the same thing, right? It's all fallenness and brokenness. And there are a million forms of it, but it all boils down to the same thing. I need God to be who I want him to be. I need him not to offend me. I need him to conform to my word. I need him to conform to my ideas. So what do we do then, right? Well, when God came down, and when he came down to sort of fix us and solve this problem, he didn't come down in a way that any of us would have expected, right? He's not the Messiah that the people of God at this time were expecting. He's not the political king who gives uh, Rome the boot and restores the independence of Israel. He's not the prosperity gospel God who just gives you whatever you want and takes care of all of your problems, Right? He's the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. He is the Lamb of God. C.S. Lewis, when talking about some of this, he said this, of uh, the 20th century um, British author, he said this, Reality, uh, in fact, is usually something that you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe in Christianity. It's a religion you could not have guessed. If it offered us just a kind of universe that we had always expected, I should feel as if we were making it up. But in fact, it's not the sort of thing that anybody would have made up. It's, uh, <clears throat> it, has this, it just has this queer twist about it uh, that real things have. So let us leave behind, <clears throat> sorry, let us leave behind all these boys' philosophies, these over, simple, uh, these over simple answers. The problem is not simple, and the answer is not going to be simple either. So C.S. Lewis basically took a look at the gospel later in you know, as an adult, right? He, he didn't grow up in a, a household of believers. And one of the things that drew him to this faith was, as he was looking at it, he said, man, the Jesus presented in the four gospels and in the New Testament, this is not something that anybody would make up. This is not the God any of us want. But this is, which makes me believe this might be real, right? Because this God is so antithetical to like everything that we think, right? He, he is the God who is real. And he, he doesn't come as this powerful, the first time when he comes in the first advent, we call it, he doesn't come as this powerful conquering king. He comes as the suffering servant, the lamb of God who lays down his life on behalf of his people, and so we've seen who Jesus claims to be, and we've seen who his disciples, his closest disciples, claim, claim him to be, right? The Messiah, the suffering servant. And when you look at what Luke says um, in this gospel, this is also affirmed by people all throughout church history, right? If you go read something like, um, like one of the earliest Christian creeds, the Apostles' Creed, spells this all out really well, right? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, I'm the maker of heaven and earth. And then it talks about Jesus and Jesus Christ, his only son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And then it gets into this, right? He suffered under the under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead and buried. And then it goes on to talk about, you know, how he rose from the dead and now he sits at the right hand of God. You know, that was like the earliest Christian creed, the Apostles' Creed, which is, it wasn't written by the Apostles, but we call it the Apostles' Creed because it was very early. Um, uh, it, it, 
it affirms this idea that the Messiah was not this political king, but the suffering servant. And it leaves us with this obvious, as we think about this, right? People throughout church history have affirmed this. The application for this sermon was the easiest one I've ever had to write because it obviously leaves us with this question that you need to answer. Who do you think Jesus is? Right At the beginning, I talked about kind of how important asking the right questions are. And the question that your eternity literally rests on is who do you think Jesus is? Not what do you want him to be? Not how can I make him into my image? Not how can I add all of my baggage onto who he is? But when I take a look at the book of Luke and what he claims to be in this this book of Luke, do I believe it? right? Is he who Luke claims him to be? If your response to Jesus is just really tepid, like, I don't know, then you probably haven't really grasped um, the magnitude of what Jesus is claiming to be, who Jesus is claiming to be. When somebody says, look, I am God, only one of three things can possibly be true. And Lewis kind of talked about this. C.S. Lewis talked about this a bunch too, right? Either he's nuts and he thinks he's God and he's insane. Either he knows he's not God and he's a liar, or he's right. Those are the only three options, right? So to say he's a great moral teacher doesn't really make any sense, right? Because he's claiming not to be a moral teacher. He's claiming to be God, the Messiah, the suffering servant. And that means um, that when a person really gets into what Jesus claims to be and who he claims to be, there's only two rational responses. Either you run towards him or you run away from him. But the idea that, I don't know, he's just a dude, like it does, that doesn't make any sense, right? Either you are against Jesus or you are for him. And the way to know is by answering this question, do you believe who he claims to be? And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me challenge you, right? Um, if you think you're more or less indifferent about him, um, like I said, you probably haven't really understood the gravity of who he claims to be and what he claims is at stake for you and for your, um, you know, your eternal destiny or whatever you want to call it. So my challenge to you is this. Um, I want you to spend time and really try to deal with this question. Is Jesus who he claims to be? And if he is, then you run to him and you surrender your entire life to him, every single part. Because if he is who he claims to be, then he's God and he deserves it. But most of us uh, here are probably already believers, already followers of Jesus. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means that Jesus isn't the political Messiah who kicks out Rome, right? He's the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's the king who was raised up, but not like on a throne. He was raised up on a cross and then he was resurrected on the third day. And this has a massive impact on our self-centered worldview, right? It has this, what it does is it kills the pride within us because now we're not the center he is. And so to see the full effect, the question then is, if this is true, if Jesus is not this conquering king in his first advent, if he is this suffering Messiah, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for his people? How are we to live in the world as followers of a suffering king? Well, to answer that question, you have to actually come back next week. We're going to answer that question. Uh, So I'll see you next week at 1030 or whatever time you watch this stuff, right? Same bat time, same bat channel, because what does this actually mean for us is what Jesus gets into in the next, um, in the next passage. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. I thank you that you were not the king that any of us wanted, um, because what we want is tainted by sin. We thank you that you are the king that we need, and you are the 
the suffering servant of Isaiah. We thank you that that you died in our place. And when you were lifted up on the cross, Lord, that should have been me. My sin is awful. And uh, it is ruining me and it's ruining the world. And I thank you that in your your, your holy scripture, you have revealed uh, to us this gospel story and you have told us what's the big question and you've given us the answer. And so we thank you that you are the answer. You are the bread of life. You are the lamb of God. Come to take away the sins of the world. We love being your people and we love you for all that you've done for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.